Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky. Hey, John. Imposter syndrome is real. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, goodness. Our guest today has done so much, lived so much life, has so much care for other humans. Like We feel like imposters over here. Well, any time that Susan McPherson, our uh, self-appointed adopted godmother of our company, gives you a short <laughs> list and says, here are some of the most extraordinary humans in the world that your audience needs to get to know, we jump on that. And we have one of those here today, and we are just absolutely delighted to welcome Charlie Grosso, the founder of Hello Future, to the podcast today. Hello Future. Oh my gosh, you guys, this organization, their tagline is preventing a lost generation. They transform the refugee youth experience from alone, stuck, and forgotten to connected and empowered. But I want to talk a little bit about Charlie before we dive in, because she's had 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur. She founded her first business when she was 20 (laughs) as an advertising photographer, working with Lexus, Nike, JCPenney, Comedy Central. She's done so much traveling in 80 plus countries, and it just really grew her heart for humanity. She was kind of pouring in as a writer, a documentarian, a filmmaker. And she took all of that and took this lifelong passion for innovation and social justice and founded Hello Future in 2016. And they're bridging that education gap for adolescent refugees. And I just think that what you all are doing, Charlie, to teach the essential skills needed so these youth can become empowered entrepreneurs and community leaders, that is just a poignant ripple. And we're so geeked out to dive into your frameworks and understand your heart. So welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I, it's a pleasure to be here, and and, and your enthusiasm for me is uh, is making me blush. <laughs> the enthusiasm <laughs> is it. so real; like we're just so excited. I mean, tell us a bit of your story. We want to get to know you. Tell us about Charlie growing up, and kind of catch us up to where you're at today. For for the listeners, um, I am a Chinese American woman with a male Italian name. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I founded a you know a nonprofit working with Syrian refugee teenagers in the Middle East. You know, as you mentioned in my kind of career trajectory, um, I've been a creative my entire professional life, right? So how did I suddenly take a left turn and end up in the nonprofit space? I did not. I was not a Peace Corps volunteer. I did not cut my teeth in in kind of the major agencies. Um, I'm not Syrian. You know, so so again, how did I end up in this very kind of particular space working to advocate for this particular group of people? I know what it feels like to be alone, stuck and forgotten by the world. I had a, had a very kind of challenging and difficult teenage years. I was sent away to live in America with strangers. I did not speak the language. I couldn't go home. It was just really, really hard. And it was really hard in a way that when Syria erupted, Right in 2014, 2015, 2016, I knew what it felt like. 
I, I felt that emotional echo of, of being stuck somewhere that you didn't, wasn't by choice. Right. And, and your options are very limited in what you can do to help yourself, to help your family. And, um, I, I think that was really the impulse that drove the, everything that kind of came afterwards. Right. And I like to lean in on that emotional resonance deeply because I think that's something like a lot of us can relate to, right? Like a lot of us have had hardships in our lives in one form or another that we get. And if we can relate on that tangent of what it feels like, rather than the fact that, oh, they're Muslim or they're Syrians or what, whatever those kind of other identifiers are, um, then maybe, maybe we can just broaden our scope and our sense of empathy, maybe. Yeah, I love starting from that place. I mean, we talk a lot about the power of storytelling and just the importance of empathy in what we do. And we we actually talk all the time about how do we build empathy for others. And I think you're coming from such a beautiful place that you're using your lived experience, even though you were never a refugee, to serve refugee families. And I feel like that's how we get this work done around the world. I mean, we're never going to have the lived experience to tackle some of the worst humanitarian issues, especially coming from a privileged country like Becky and myself and our story, but um, channeling the pain and channeling similar emotions is possible for sure for all of us. And so I love that viewpoint. Well, I mean, tell us about, I mean, how did you step into, I want to hear about your creative endeavors and then walk us back into this. But I mean, you went on to work with some of the biggest brands photographing, you know, and using a creative skill. What was that part of your journey like and what did you learn? Uh, so I was a theater major to start. I was a theater major and uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't an actor. I was a producer and a director. Um, and I said that I have a degree in in making something out of nothing because that's exactly what our job was, right? You have a black box to go make magic. At the at the end of my bachelor's years, I applied for grad school because that's what you do. And but I was pretty burnt out. I was pretty burnt out, and I was really doubting the the usefulness of a grad degree for me at the time. I made a deal with myself that if I got into NYU, I would go. And if I didn't, I was going to start my own business. I got into everywhere else except NYU. I started a career as a photographer. You know, I, I honored my own kind of bet with the universe. And I was like, all right, well, then we're going to go be a photographer because every admission officer wanted to talk to me about my photography portfolio and not my design portfolio. And, and I caught a few breaks really early on in my 20s. And next thing you know, I was shooting full page ads for Seventeen OYM magazine. And I was like, I'm 23 years old. So, so I had a 10 year career, you know, as an advertising photographer um, and a creative director in, in the ad space in Los Angeles. And it was a lot of fun. And I don't know that I would had enough willpower to leave it, even though I was tired of it. Had it had I not been forced to put that to rest, um, the 2008 market crash just flattened everybody out. So talk about that transition because that's a pretty big jump from for profit advertising into this for purpose space. Like, was there a moment? Was there a light switch that came on? Was it a feeling? What What was that like for you? So between 09 and 2015. 
you know, I had a smattering of other kind of businesses. I was consulting for some tech companies on their branding and messaging stuff. I did some nonprofit brand designs and strategic planning and program design. There was there was just a lot of other kind of smattering things. And I was also I was also working as a documentary photographer. So I was all over the world. So 2015, I was again at this kind of inflection point of like what I wanted to do and, and just career wise. And again, Sierra blew up and and I was at leisure to leave. So I left New York City and moved to Istanbul. And I lived in Istanbul all 2016. And the initial impetus was that I was interested in either a book or a short film, something I knew how to wrap my arms around, something I knew how to make as a creative. But I had a couple of dialogical conversations happening in my head at the same time. Right. Again, I'm still really interested in how does how does the media story we tell affect the how we think about something, how we participate in something, what is the conversation we have about a thing, right? And I was having conversations with refugee teens or refugee families at this time. And from a consultant background, I was really interested in their relationship to technology. So in the Middle East, mobile phone penetration is really high. It's like 1.1, 1.2 per person. So everybody has a phone, right? Whether they're a smartphone or just a regular mobile, that's socioeconomics, but everybody had one. And I was seeing UN reports putting the cost of connectivity as high as 33% per person for available income. So you're talking about people who don't have a lot of disposable income to start with, paying upward to a third of what they have in order to be connected to the internet. That's crazy. Unbelievable. Well, it tells you that it's really important to them, right? Mm -hmm. So in the conversations I had with refugee families in the beginning was, do you have a mobile? And the heads of a household would like, you know, bring it out and say, yes, of course I do. And they're really excited to show it to me, right? Of course I do, right? I was like, that's cool. Like, what do you do with it? And they're like, oh, I'm on Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. So am I. What else do you do with it? And now they're confused. And then now they want to change the conversation and they want to talk to me about how worried they are about their kids' education. Syria had a lot of emphasis on education as a, as a country within the greater region as a whole. Their literacy rate before the conflicts was 86%, which is actually on par with the U.S. It's a very well-educated, literate populace. So the parents are concerned, right? Like, I'm worried about my kids' education. And I would say, well, have you ever looked for something that could help them learn? There's apps, there's games, there's videos, there's platforms, there's tutorials. Like, there's no shortage of things to look at. And I'm like, what? They have no idea what I'm talking about. I would say, well, have you ever searched for something before? And they're like, what? Right. And before I actually use the word search, I would ask, like, have you ever Googled for something? Because that's how we would ask the question. Right. They're like, what? How do you Google? I would literally get that question all the time. How do you Google? Turns out that's just not a thing that people do. Their experience of the Internet is radically different than ours. The Internet is a point of connection, right? They talk to family members and each other via WhatsApp or Facebook. Their entire news source comes from Facebook. You and I would think of the internet as a resource, first and foremost, right. right? Before we think of it as entertainment. For them, it's just entertainment. It's this passive feed of information that comes at them. And once I had enough of these conversations, I was like, wait a minute. The internet for you is a radically different thing than the internet for me. But I can totally teach you how to use the internet. And if I taught you how to use the internet, you would have all kinds of benefit that comes from it. 
right? You can teach yourself things. You can find information. You can find resources. You can find help. You can protect yourself better. So it quickly shifted out of a book or a film into a into a teaching moment. Oh my gosh! And your whole world just changes. I would love to hear how Hello Future came out of this, and you've you've taken this journey, which was really about storytelling and lifting the voices of people of real people, and all of a sudden you've become a lifeline to them. And I would love for you to talk about this inception story. Once I identified this need for digital literacy, right, the ability to find, search, and share content online, and and those words sound so. They're small words, right? They're they're like five letter words that we all understand what it means. But behind it, pack some really big ideas. Find right the the, the active search itself. How do I know this is a good search result that I'm looking for? An ad versus a verified result. What does it mean to have first page Google ranking? Those are actually kind of complex ideas that us as adults had to learn. You as a marketer had to figure out. Verification is a different is a different idea, right? What does it mean to share? You know, especially after the last few years we had, I think the negative side of sharing is a little bit more readily available to us, right? Right. But you know, back in 2016, like that wasn't so readily apparent. So to me, digital literacy involves media literacy. The internet is a media saturated place. They go hand in hand, but we don't talk about those things because I think to start. We assume that people are just digitally literate, but I think even here in the states, I think there's you know generationally definitely doesn't understand at all levels what you can learn just from watching YouTube. I mean, you know that you can grow so much with the knowledge available. I think there's a gap of of that, you know. So I can of course understand this in different cultures that haven't had that maybe time to germinate and all these kind of things. Absolutely right. Even in the you know the massive remote learning experiment that we went on these last two years, right? Think about how parents were forced to be tech support for their kids while they're trying to remote learn, right? And and this is a generation. This is supposed to be like the digital native generation, right? They're supposed to be digital first in everything. Um, they're just they're just a set of skills that I think we take for granted and we haven't. We haven't spent enough time in exploring and what it means to to be digitally literate and to both understand the advantages and the pitfalls of this 21st century. Well, you know, kind of give us, you know, share some of your hallmarks of what the programs that you really stood up because you talk about transforming the refugee youth experience. What does that look like in a tangible form? How are you doing that through your programs? Our one-on-one program, I kind of think of it as a kitchen sink of ideas. It um, it combines, it has this digital literacy, digital basic moments. And when we talk about digital basics, I mean, basic productivity tools that you and I use every day, right? Um, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Google Drive, emails, right? Like there are certain proficiencies and exposures that one needs to any of those things in order to use it well. And then there are certain etiquettes, for example, in the email space that is just required. Imagine you're a 17-year-old refugee. Like, who was going to teach you how to write a polite few sentences? We look at the fundamental skills a person needs in order to be successful in this 21st century. And it's a combination of both hard skills and soft skills. A lot of our hard skills 
I already kind of mentioned. But then there's soft skills that, again, we take for granted, um, like teamwork, collaboration, project management, critical thinking. Again, we come back to media literacy, right? How do I analyze this thing that's being told to me? How do I decide if if that's a story that fits for me or if I want to retell that story differently, right? Um, in, in the refugee space, there's also a lot of need to just be heard. It's incredible for us to see our students stand up in our class and to tell their stories and for that stories to be embraced by their peers um, who are their neighbors and their friends and their schoolmates and for them to say, I too had a similar experience. When the kids see themselves in each other, and you would imagine that they already do because they're, they're neighbors and schoolmates and they live in the same place, but yet they never had to speak of these things. They never had a form to, to be okay to talk about things, right? And, and then for that moment recognition to happen amongst themselves. That's always really powerful for us. So we touched upon um, a number of SEL factors psychosocial factors um, as we build their soft skills. Well, I wonder, this may be backtracking a tad, but I wonder if you would give us, just paint the picture for what the refugee situation is like. I know you work with a lot of Syrian refugees, but kind of paint a picture. How many people are we talking about? What are their gaps? What are their challenges? And kind of bring us into that story. I want to know, like, what is a daily life look like, you know, and introduce us to somebody in that. Um, so the, the camp we work at is in Iraqi Kurdistan. So we've been working out of a refugee camp um, since, since our inception in 2017. It's converted from a tent camp into a cinder block camp. So low cinder block homes, permanent structures, um, the roads are paved now. And so there's electricity, there's uh, water, there's sanitation, and, and all those services are provided by various other NGO entities. The camp is about an hour outside of the closest big city. So, you know, it's kind of standard camp setting, right? Camps are set outside of major cities. Kurdistan is unique in the refugee space in that they allow for work so they can work legally if they can get it. Um, and they have freedom of movement so they can come in and out of the camp. That's not always true. Um, it's actually mostly not true, depending on the, the camp and the country you're in both um, the, the ability to work and the freedom of movement. Despite of the ability to work, it's set against a backdrop of 17% national unemployment rate and a 20% youth unemployment rate. So regional unemployment is high. It, it then is a slippery slope down the exploitative labor practices. The kids get to go to school. So we decided to work with refugee teams really early on because we looked at what everybody was offering. And in the greater ecosystem as a whole, the bigger NGOs like to focus on primary school kids. So little kids, grade like one through six, and then heads of households. So either like age 35 and up or like that kind of 18 to 35 range, leaving teenagers without a lot of options and largely unattended to, which make them extremely vulnerable. They're also at a very, very vulnerable, um, informative age. The girls are at risk for early marriage. The boys are at risk for radicalization. Both are at risk for exploitative labor practices. And and I think those years are the years in which the kids decide who they want to be, you know, rather consciously or unconsciously. So we decided to work with teens just to kind of fill that service gap. 
So our students get four hours of school a day if they go to school. Secondary school attainment for refugees as a whole is 34%, which means that most of their education stops at sixth grade. University attainment globally is 3%. Wow. So most of them do not go to universities. They kind of live and exist within this cinder block camp. That's their universe. Um, town is a little bit far. They can get there, but it's just a little bit far. Hey, friends, we've got to pause the podcast for a minute. We have some really exciting news to share. Yeah, we're partnering up with our friends at Virtuous to co-host this year's free responsive nonprofit summit on April 20th and 21st. And we want to see you there. So come and join thousands of like-minded, forward-thinking nonprofit leaders for two days of fresh insights, helpful workshops, and genuine conversations as we gather virtually from wherever you find yourself in the world. We're curating some amazing panels to help you build better systems and strategies to help you grow your impact. You may even recognize some of our past podcast guests and favorite thought leaders too. Okay, so can we count you in? To join us at the Responsive Nonprofit Summit, visit virtuous.org slash good and register for free. Hey friends, after meeting some of the most visionary leaders and world changers in the nonprofit sector today, we realize they all have one thing in common. They invest in themselves and their teams so they can stay relevant to what's working now to succeed and scale their missions. You know us, we believe education's for all, and that's why we created We Are For Good Pro. Pro is reimagining nonprofit professional development, giving you access to incredible live coaching events with some of the best thought leaders like Kashana Palmer, Lynn Wester, and more. Imagine being able to work through your challenges in real time, that's the power of pro. Every week, we host a new workshop, giving you the playbook and tools to take immediate action, build your confidence, and grow your impact. Be the pro and get started today with a 14-day free trial. Head over to weareforgoodpro.com slash free. Okay, let's get back to this amazing conversation. I just thank you for taking this observation that you made and finding ways that you could fill in a gap and I just am picturing these camps and just the, the, the word cinder block is just hitting me over and over. And I just keep seeing like not a lot of color and not a lot of change. And I go back to the vibrancy again. We want people to live vibrant lives. And I think when you give someone power in, and I'm holding up my phone in this device, it opens up a world of possibilities that could have never been seen when you're staring at cinder blocks. And so talk us through what you're doing with these kids. What are they doing once they get some of this tech literacy? Where does it take them? Where are they going once they get this? And I would love for you to share a story if you have one. You're absolutely right, Becky. It's it's gray. It's cinder block. It's, it seems really depressing. But there's there's bakeries and there's mosques and there's there's greenhouses. So it's this attempt to make a life of where they are, despite of how rough the circumstances are. Right. And when I when I look at these things, these scenes and these stores that exist within the camp, it um, it tells me that they're still striving for for these big moments in life, right? Again, graduations and engagements and weddings and babies, and that they so much want to hold on to that however they can. So one of the activities that we do with our students in our 101 program is called the $5 Business. It's an introduction to entrepreneurial principles, but more than that is a project management collaborative work tool, right? That's really the hidden agenda underneath it for our kids. They get the, the equivalent of $5 to start, 
That's their C capital. They have one week to plan. They have two hours to execute this business and then they have to report out, you know, with a full kind of spreadsheet PNL and, uh, and a slide presentation and they have to stand up in class and tell us how they did. They have to figure out how to, to, how to get it all done, right? They have to assign each other tasks, call each other accountable, right? What happens when somebody doesn't pull their weight, right? Like those are all things to have to figure out on their own. So one of my favorite $5 business. And I want you to think about how quick the adoption rate is and just how smart these kids are without knowing complex business principles. So the lesson before the $5 business is a virtual reality one. They experience virtual reality for the first time. They make their own. Now they are onto this $5 business moment. And this team of girls decided that they wanted to have a virtual reality business. Because they only have two hours to execute, they decided to split their own team up in halves. Um, and they all each half was going to walk around the camp and run into whomever they run into and say, hey, would you like a virtual reality experience? So the first half of the team walked around camp and say, hey, would you like a virtual reality experience anywhere you like? They got some takers, not a ton. They didn't realize that their prospective clients were stumped by um, with the paralysis choice. Right. When they had to pick, they didn't know what to pick because they could go anywhere. And the other team, the other half, walked around the camp and went up to grandmothers and said, would you like a virtual reality tour of Mecca? And and for the listeners who um, aren't familiar with Muslim customs, every Muslim, if they're able, is supposed to go on a hajj, a tour of Mecca. It's a big pilgrimage. It's very expensive because it's located in Saudi Arabia. So a lot of people do not have an opportunity to go visit Mecca in their lifetime, but it's definitely this deep, profound religious desire that they have. So the girls went around and asked grandmothers, would you like a visual tour, a virtual reality tour of Mecca? In two hours, this team brought in $34 for their investment of five and knocked it out of the park. But think about the advanced business principles in which they demonstrated themselves. They A-B tested without knowing that's what it was. Of course, Mm -hmm. they don't understand what choice paralysis is, but that's exactly what happened. Instead of a hyper niche play of, you know, a tour of Mecca to a very targeted demo, grandmothers who have this deep longing to do something that they know they probably will never get to do, but they really want to. Of course, that sells. So think about how quick these kids adapted to a technology they never experienced before and then to executing in a business idea that is 100 times viable. Yeah, I just keep thinking of like, it's almost like these possibilities that you're unlocking because everyone's walking around with these phones. Like, I'm, I'm so like stuck on that first instance when you're like, no one even realizes the potential. It's like in their pocket. It's like Steve Jobs on stage. Like you don't believe what's in this pocket. Like you just keep going, open up these new apps. So, I mean, what does it look like? What is your dream as, the, as refugees embrace these entrepreneur principles? What's kind of the next step? Absolutely. I think all of it is about unlocking potential, right? The potential of the internet for for not just the youth, but their parents and their siblings. Teenagers are great vectors of um, viral spread, right? They can teach up, they can teach down, they can teach laterally. Their adoption rate is super speedy. Um, so I think that's really powerful. We all unlocked the power of the internet for them by shifting the framework, by exposure, right? And we want to lock their own human potential by teaching them tangible skills, by teaching them transferable 21st century skills that does not lock them into a particular vocation. 
as you know, there are many NGOs who are still focused on non-transferable vocational training. I like to say that I am future-proofing them. So we want to future-proof these kids with hard skills, soft skills, entrepreneur skills, leadership skills. As these kids have demonstrated, they have the insights. They have better insights than I do and, and any NGO worker who's on the ground, right? Because they live in the community. They're part of the community. They understand the community in a way that I never will, right? So why don't we teach them what we know so they can be community leaders and they can be change makers? And then we really get to local capacity building instead of always external players coming in and trying to fix whatever it is we're trying to fix. Yeah. It feels to me that you are doing the hard work. You're going, you're not taking the problem at surface level. You're going to a systemic deep level. And in those skills are something that they could teach their peers. And if they're hungry enough, you know, it has the ability and the rapidity to be um, translated and the ripple can go on and on. And I just am wanting to picture a kid right now in this community. Would you tell us a story of a particular youth who has been affected by your programs and, and how it touched your heart? Well, Ian is one of my favorite kids. Um, super smart. He wanted to be a video game designer. He's not no longer continuing in our programs, um, but he is not for the best reason of all. So after our 101, so we have five courses. 101 is the beginning, of course. Um, after our 101 course, he wanted to know what else was available to him. So he looked online for university opportunities. He found the United World College. Our instructors acted as a caring adult and helped him decipher what does it take to apply to a university. Because as all the parents out there with college teenagers know, like that's that's a beast. That's a beast when you speak English. Mm-hmm. It's another when, you know, you never applied to college before. So our instructor helped him walk through the the university application process, including a scholarship and uh and wrote him of recommendation letter. And now Ian is in India studying at a the United World College site. And Ian will have, he'll have this opportunity to have a beautiful, beautiful life because he got out of camp. He got out of camp and he will also be able to support and help his family when that time comes. His family's still in camp. And, and that has shortened a projected protracted stay of 20 plus years from 20 to five. Oh. Right. And, wow. and that's massive. So we wish for, we wish for more IANs, of course. Right. But also like people take different trajectories. Um, what we're hoping with the small business incubator that we're launching later this year is that, you know, we're going to go deeper into business principles so that we can help them start small businesses that are tech enabled, right? They're not, a te- they're not, it doesn't need to be a technology business, right? Just tech enabled as we are tech enabled in this moment. And design things that the community really needs, right? And again, it's going to be their insights, their initiative, their relationship with the community. And we set them up to be community leaders, right? Rather than us being community leaders. Um, and that they can have different outcomes for themselves and for their families. Again, shortchanging the, the projected 20 years of protracted stay. I want to ask you a question um, that's that's personal. You don't have to ask answer if you don't want to, but I'm 
going back to little Charlie and I'm thinking about how little Charlie must have felt coming into a strange new world and the isolation and the fear. And, and, and I look at you now and like, what a force for good you are. And you've had such a winding path, like just from education and to the creative and, and where you've gone around the world. And, and I see you in this moment and I just wonder how it feels to you to look at this beautiful thing that you've created, to look at the IANs of the world. And I wonder how that feels when you look back and you think about coming in and giving them this parachute that you so desperately wanted and probably received eventually through your wonderful education and just having, you know, this tenacious grit that you have. How does it feel to you when you look at this? The work feels, how I ended up at this work and the work itself feels deeply karmic and right in in so many ways and in the ways that I see myself in these kids. And, you know, at 43, I still remember what it feels like to to be a teenager, to be full of angst and and frustration and and feeling powerless in in the world in which is set up for us. And I love every moment in which I learn from the field, these stories of, of IANs and, and the girls and their VR projects. And right. Um, I love it. That's the, those are the moments that makes it all possible. Right. And, and all the countless moments in which the kids say like, thank you for, thank you for listening. We, we create these, uh, these kind of remote feedback moments where um, external people like yourselves can provide feedback into their projects that they create for as part of their class assignment. And it matters so much to these kids to be like, oh, you, Jonathan, Becky, like you guys are, you guys are important people in this world with important jobs. And you looked at my school project and, and gave me feedback on it. And that made me, that made me feel real. That made me feel important and seen. That's everything. You know, life is long and complicated. Whether whether they all going to have a positive outcome or not is is anybody's guess, right? But but to know that we made that moment possible, that they felt seen and heard, and that we imparted them with some useful skills that will carry them through this life, that's pretty awesome. What a compliment! You know, I can't think of a a more poignant thing to tell you after your journey, but that you listened to me, you know, that you saw me like how beautiful and that you're a real person and PS sign me up to go look at anybody's work. So yeah. like, I would love, this is like, we talk about the five minute favor all the time on this podcast. It's like anybody could give five minutes to review one of this. So I just thank you for sharing the story. It is such a powerful mission that you're advocating for. And you know, we end all of our podcast with asking our guests to give us one good thing. It could be a piece of advice, a life hack. What would be your one good thing you'd offer up to our audience today? Hello Future came out of listening to to the refugee families that I was interviewing, um, not on a narrative that I wanted them to conform to, but but what they what their true experiences are. And we see how powerful that is every day with our students um, when we listen to them, when they listen to each other. Um, when we make them go outside and, and talk to adults and, and really listen to what the adults have to say to them. Um, and, 
And that's also what I practice every day with our staff, right? Like I, I give them a lot of time to, to just really tell me what is it that they want to tell me, right? And sometimes it takes, it takes a while to like get to the core of the thing, but, but to give them the time and to listen and also let them feel heard. Can I add a one good thing here, John? I can't help it. I just, I am feeling so heartened by the refugee conversation here. And for anyone who's wondering how to socialize this conversation with your children, I just wanted to give two really quick resources. Um, one, my daughter has read Refugee, which is a book by Alan Gratz, and it's a breakdown of uh, youth refugees from Nazi Germany, one from 1990s Cuba, and one from modern day Syria. And it is a great book. I've read portions of it to awaken the empathy inside your children to understand how to relate to a refugee or how to understand what these children are going through. And the other one that I use with my seven-year-old is a graphic novel called When Stars Are Scattered. And it's about an African uh, refugee crisis. And the author is actually the boy who lived the entire story with his um, nonverbal smaller brother. And they're two great stories. If you're looking for ways to have this conversation, build empathy, we're watching you know, the Ukrainian-Russian crisis right now. It's a great time to just talk about love and empathy and peace and showing up where you can to help when you can. Love those, Becky. Well, Charlie, okay. We just have loved this conversation. How can our listeners connect with you? How can we get plugged in with everything you're doing at Hello Future? Um, well, we're available where all things on the internet is available <laughs> on the internet at all the usual places. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can always find us at hellofuture.io. Um, sign up for our newsletter. And if you are interested in becoming a judge for um, and review some of the kids' projects and give them feedbacks on it, send me an email at um, charlie at hellofuture.io and I'll personally add you to, uh, to the distribution list on that. Well, definitely signing up. And I just think if this conversation is spoken to you in any way, please find a way to pour into it, get educated through Hello Future's social channels. If that's a way to kind of get yourself warm, they have incredible video on their homepage that has, you know, the kids talking about this experience. And I just think lean into this concept to of preventing a lost generation. There's so much potential that could be yielded from these kids and we want to give everybody the potential to live to their fullest. So thank you, Charlie, for coming in and just inspiring us and keep going with this important work. Thank you too. It's been a pleasure and I'm, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak without having to pitch. Um, Cause I realized our conversation <laughs> wasn't very pitchy. Um. <laughs> thank you. This has been awesome. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode was brought to you by our good friends at Auth0. With Auth0, your nonprofit can do more with a login box. Greet prospects and rabid fans of your mission with authenticity. Simply make it easier for your team to manage data. There's so much that Auth0 login experience can do. Visit auth0.org for more info. If you enjoyed this episode, we know you'll love being part of the We Are For Good community. It's like our own social network where you can find like-minded friends, ask questions, share resources, and find inspiration anytime. Sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. Thanks, friends.
Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.